welcome to the PLUS podcast. This podcast comes to you from a conference on the philosophy of cosmology, which took place in Oxford in the beginning of May. The conference is part of a whole series, but this particular meeting focused on the nature of time. And in particular, it focused on a fact that is painfully familiar to all of us, namely that time has a direction. It marches steadily on with horrifying regularity and there's no way of turning it back. From a physical viewpoint, this direction of time presents a puzzle because it's not there in the fundamental laws of physics. Later on, we'll be hearing from the eminent Roger Penrose about his own controversial ideas on the matter. But first I talk to Jeremy Butterfield, a philosopher of physics at the University of Cambridge, about an even more fundamental question. Cosmologists and physicists are on the hunt for a universal theory, the one theory that can explain everything in the universe we live in. But from a philosophical viewpoint, there is no reason to believe that our minds are actually equipped to conceive of such a theory. In fact, there is a mathematical result called Munchak's theorem, which states that it is impossible to know everything about the nature of the universe. So I started out by asking Jeremy where this depressing fact leaves us. Well, I'm afraid it leaves us with uh, you know, the sad situation that we may never know. And we should admit now that we may never know, or even we probably won't ever know. Uh, but we still, uh, you know, it's the great game. We have to keep trying. And um, what about Manchak's theorem? Can you, can you describe in a general sense what it says? Uh, well, Manchak's theorem is making precise the, the sad part about uh, of underdetermination. So it's a, it's, a, it's a theorem of sadness and pessimism. Uh, <laughs> because it, the gist of the theorem is uh, if you pay attention to what you can actually observe, because you can only observe things uh, in your past, you can't observe things in the future, and you can't observe things so far away that it would take a signal quicker than light for you to get the observation now. So you can only observe things in your so-called past light cone, the collection of all space-time that is uh, able to send you a signal which travels at most as fast as light. So if, if you take due, due allowance for the, that limitation that you can only know about your past light cone, then even if you had full knowledge of your past light cone, you wouldn't know about the global shape of space-time. So it's yeah. impossible to know that. Yeah. So what would you say to somebody who's listening to all that and about to give up on science? Um, be strong. You have to... <laughs> have faith. You have to, yeah. You, even if it's a very pessimistic and sad situation, you have to just uh, steal your heart and uh, soldier on. We must be able to somehow get through the tunnel. And you said that you're a scientific realist. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Oh, well, I would say, um, uh, you know, in philosophy, realism uh, is a very broad doctrine going back over the hundreds and thousands of years that uh, reality is independent of our human imagination and our minds uh, so reality is separate from us it's not uh, whereas idealism says that reality is sort of an aspect of the human mind uh, but realism goes on to say although reality is separate from us uh, we can have knowledge of it so realism is an optimistic doctrine reality is different but don't be despairing we can get knowledge of it and scientific realism is the modern version of that within uh, 20th century philosophy because the enormous success of science 
uh, prompts the thought that it is science that gives us the knowledge of reality. Mm-hmm. So that's how scientific realism got labeled. Mm. Yeah. But then how do you ever determine when there is enough evidence for something? Because you said that you believe that if you take the accepted models in cosmology, for example, that you believe there is sufficient evidence and sufficiently varied evidence to believe. So how, wh- where do you put the benchmark? How do you decide what is sufficient evidence? Uh, yes, well, that is, uh, that is a very difficult question doubly difficult because first of all I don't think there are general rules as I said in the talk uh, you c- uh, there can't be general rules that are the same in different sciences or even you know different episodes in one science uh, but I certainly do think that for things like the uh, the history of the observable universe and the uh, uh, the existence of some primeval fireball and the creation of nuclei of elements in the very first seconds, and then the formation of stars and galaxies by gravitational clustering, those are things that we do have so much and such varied evidence for that uh, we, we, you know, as a scientific realist, I would say we certainly, we know them now and we'll never give them up. We know them just as much as we know that uh, oceans have water in them. So, on the optimistic note of scientific realism, I went on to talk to David Wallace, a philosopher of physics at the University of Oxford, and I asked him why the direction of time, the so-called arrow of time, presents a puzzle to physicists. So, if you look at the world around us and you look at the physical process in the world around us, most of them seem to have a rather definite direction, difference between the past and the future. In them. So, for instance... Uh, ice cubes melt, we don't observe water spontaneously forming ice cubes Um, and that might just seem isn't that just a basic feature of physics but the slightly strange thing is that microscopic physics, the physics of the individual atoms and molecules that supposedly make up those ice cubes and other big systems don't seem to have that property they don't seem to have in in their physics any difference between the past and the future so you could put it this way, if I showed you any large scale process and I videoed it and then I played you the video again backwards you'd be able to tell immediately which way I played the video if I did this with microscopic physics of individual small systems you wouldn't be able to tell You can even see this for a few macroscopic systems. If I played you a tennis ball bouncing back and forward, that kind of system, you wouldn't be able to tell from the video which way it was. But somehow, most most small-scale physics doesn't care about the difference between the past and the future. Most large-scale physics does care about the difference between the past and the future. And since we think that the principles of large-scale physics come out of the principles of small-scale physics, there seems to be a bit of a problem. We want to understand how that can be resolved. Okay. And um, yesterday in your talk, you were talking about statistical mechanics. So that's... Um Uh, about you know describing a system of many components not in terms of the exact locations of every component but in terms of general statistics exactly. and why is that relevant to the question of the era of time so statistical mechanics is exactly that branch of physics which has the job of taking those microscopic equations which don't care about the difference between past and future and deriving from those getting out of those the macroscopic equations that do care about past and future we've had for a hundred years an actual branch of physics that's capable of doing that and that branch has been extremely successful we take that take that melting ice cube again we can more or less calculate what the heat capacity of that ice cube is how quickly it melts so we could do that for a whole bunch of physical systems and we we learn how to do it for more every year 
But precisely because somehow we've gone from this doesn't care about times, direction, microphysics to does care about times, direction, macrophysics through statistical mechanics, somewhere in statistical mechanics, explicitly or tacitly, we're making an assumption which breaks that symmetry, which somehow puts in the fact that the past and the future are different. Do we, which is that is assumption? Do we know that? Or well, is that that's, very, we that's very controversial. Mm. Um, statistical mechanics is one of these areas in physics where we know how to use the machinery of it very, very well. But there are a lot of quite deep controversies about how to understand what that machinery is doing, what justifies certain mathematical moves and so forth. The subject, if you like, was conceived in sin. We've had these foundational conceptual problems in it ever since the late 19th century when the theory started to be written down. And in a sense, we've got much, much better at calculating the theory since then. And we've illuminated various of these controversies as to what the underlying time asymmetric assumptions are. But illumination isn't the same as getting a complete solution, though many of the problems still remain. Mm -hmm. The nearest we have to it, and this is linked why this is an hour of time conference in a, in a programme on philosophy of cosmology, is there's a lot of ground to think that something about the particular conditions of the early universe has to be somehow implicitly being that additional assumption. And in a sense, it kind of has to go on. So, so within statistical mechanics, you're making an, an assumption about the conditions of the early universe. Well, it seems as if something like that must be going on indirectly, precisely in a sense, because if the if the laws of physics don't care about the difference between past and the future, we have to put the difference in somewhere. Mm. And about the only remaining place is in the initial conditions, mm. the way we start off those laws and let them run forward. So what is the connection between statistical mechanics, which describes, for example, the collective behavior of atoms that make up a gas, and the direction of time and the Big Bang. It lies in what is called the second law of thermodynamics. When you look at a physical system, for example a gas being released from a bottle into a room, you can ask how much randomness or how much disorder there is in the system. In the gas example, the initial situation which has all the atoms of the gas trapped in the bottle is more orderly, so it's less random, than what you get after the gas has escaped, which it will naturally do when you open the bottle, and all the atoms are randomly dispersed throughout the room. Now, there is a number that measures the randomness or disorder in a system. It's called the entropy of the system. And the second law of thermodynamics states that the entropy of a system never decreases. In fact, it usually increases. Things move from order to disorder. Now, we see this law in action all the time. We already mentioned the gas example, in which the entropy increases as the gas disperses. Similarly, you can turn an egg into an omelette, which is much less ordered than the initial egg, but you can't turn an omelette back into an egg. And for a third example, you can easily turn a glass of wine into a mess of cracked glass and wine on the carpet, but you don't expect the mess on the carpet to ever turn back into a glass full of wine. And to find out what all this has to do with the Big Bang and why the second law of thermodynamics is special when it comes to time, I went to talk to Roger Penrose. Well, you see, it's, first of all, it's asymmetrical. Mm -hmm. So that you see, m most laws of physics, such as energy conservation mm -hmm. and the dynamical laws, uh, work just as well in the forward direction as in the backward direction. So what's rather strange about the second law is that it's a one-directional law. And so people try to understand how that can come about by all sorts of considerations. But I was trying to argue that it basically is rooted in the Big Bang, you see, because you have to say 
that if the entropy is going up all the time, it must have been relatively very small at the time of the Big Bang, which is in a certain sense a paradox because the Big Bang, most of the evidence about it, you would say it's a very random state. And the nature of this radiation, which is called the microwave background, if you look at it, you see it, it ind indicates that its source was something very random. Mm -hmm. So the puzzle is why, in what way, was the Big Bang actually not random? And I try to point out that the specific, it's only one thing which is not random about it, which had to do with gravity. Well, that gravity, in general terms, acts in the opposite direction. That is to say, if you have a gas um, tucked up in one corner, then it spreads out and becomes more uniform. But gravitational systems tend to clump, basically just because you have a, an attractive force involved. But what's particularly special about gravity is not just that it's attractive, but that it happens not to have been activated in the beginning. So you find that the uniform state that the I mean, it was a big explosion, <laughs> mm -hmm. but it was a very uniform explosion. It wasn't um, the material which resulted from the Big Bang had the potential to, to clump. Roger Penrose has come up with a mathematical formulation for the fact that gravity wasn't activated at the Big Bang. Einstein's general theory of relativity contains a mathematical term which corresponds to the gravitational field, and Penrose postulates that this term was zero at the Big Bang. But there is another puzzle. Why did the universe start out in such a low entropy or in such a highly ordered state? Out of all the possible states it could have started out in, the highly ordered ones are incredibly rare, so short of evoking a creator who has purposefully chosen this state, how can we explain it? Penrose has his own very controversial and highly mathematical theory. We accept that our universe started with the Big Bang and that at the Big Bang it was infinitely compressed, hot and dense. We also know that our universe is expanding. In fact, the rate at which it is expanding is accelerating. If this continues, then in the remote future the universe will have expanded out to infinity and its density and temperature will have vanished to nothing. Now, on the face of it, the Big Bang and the fully expanded universe appear radically different. But Penrose argues that in both situations, the universe is actually insensitive to the features that make them so different, namely distance and time. All this can be formulated in stringent mathematical terms, and mathematically you can actually identify the two situations. And then our Big Bang simply becomes the end of a previous universe. The talk that I shall give on Wednesday is a rather radical view mm. of cosmology in which the Big Bang was not the beginning, that there was a previous, what I call an eon, spelled A-E-O-N, at least in American they spell E-O-N, but I <laughs> have the, the more Greek type of spelling. And the eon means what we presently regard as our a picture of the entire history of the universe. So our present eon starts with the Big Bang mm -hmm. and ends with this exponentially expanding universe. That we're in now. Mm -hmm. That's right. And then I say there was a previous eon also, and it will keep on going. There's one after ours and one before that one, two on, so on. But the previous eon was what happened before the Big Bang. Now the thing, the stretch of the imagination 
is to realize that the physics of relevance at the crossover from the previous eon to our eon was insensitive to the scale of time, which means also insensitive to the scale of distance. It's a, different, a difficult idea to get your mind around, but it's, it's a curious fact of the physics that we understand today that all the forces of nature which do not involve mass, rest mass, masses of particles, are what are called conformally invariant. That is to say, they are insensitive to the scale, time scale mm -hmm. or space scale. They do respect the light cones, so that means that the speed of light is still respected. But this gives you a, a more flexible type of space-time geometry than we know from Einstein. Einstein tells us we have a thing called the metric. Now the metric has 10 components per point, 10 numbers at each point. Nine of those numbers go to telling you where these light cones are. The remaining number, the one number, tells you the scale. Now much of physics, that physics which doesn't involve mass, which includes the whole of electromagnetism, Maxwell's wonderful theory, and also the strong and weak forces of nature, when there is the mass is not involved, they don't notice the scale. Right. So, so you don't need yeah. You don't need the extra number. Mm -hmm. Gravity needs the extra number, mm. as does mass itself. But if you have there are the two ends of each eon, go back to the Big Bang as far as you can, temperatures get so high that rest mass, the masses of particles, become irrelevant. This in terms that we're sort of familiar with today, the LHC, this great machine which in trying to detect whether there's a Higgs particle and all that. This is looking at energies where it's just beginning to be relevant mass. Mm -hmm. If you get to higher energies, higher temperatures, the mass is completely gone. So when you go back to the Big Bang, the mass becomes irrelevant. And so the physics is this nine numbers per point, not the ten numbers, which is what's called conformal geometry. That geometry is what is relevant to physics. Now at the remote end of the future, you have a somewhat similar situation where the mass goes away and you have effectively nothing left but photons. And these photons, again, are not interested in that tenth number. They're mm. interested only in the nine. And so they don't know the difference between big and small. So this exp fully expanded universe, well, right out to infinity, is indistinguishable from a Big Bang. And so oh. that's, that's the thing you have to get your mind around. Mm -hmm. And that needs some serious mathematics, but the idea is, in, in sort of hand-waving terms, that the scale becomes in unimportant. And so that the Big Bang of our eon is the development of this remote future of right. the previous Right, this is eon. why it's repeti why yes. there are repetitions. Yes, and this keeps on going like mm. this, yes. Penrose's cyclic universe model gets around the puzzle posed by the low-entropy beginning because the universe wasn't simply presented to us in, the, in this state on a plate, rather it evolved from the previous aeon. But it's an idea that sounds pretty fantastical and it's highly controversial among cosmologists. But Penrose claims that it can indeed be tested in experiments and that some experimental evidence for it already exists. You can find out more about his model in the book Cycles of Time, published by Bodley Head. And that's it for this PLUS podcast. 
You can read more about the nature of time in the PLUS article, What is Time?, which you can find on the PLUS website at plus.maths.org. My name is Marianne Freiberger. Thanks for listening and bye-bye. Thank you.